from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Shemini. This week, Rabbi Elisha Anchovitz discusses Shemini. Rabbi Anchovitz is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Elisha Anchovitz. This week, we are going to do something different. This week's parsha is Parshat Shemini. It includes a list of animals that are forbidden to eat. And we are going to understand that list and understand how it speaks to our present obligation to restrict ourselves in order to protect the vulnerable and our shared healthcare system by touring, touring, taking a tour through Tanakh, a bit, a short tour, instead of focusing on specific words in this week's parsha and then expanding out from there. So, if you want to just listen to the tour in the background, enjoy. That's the point of a podcast. If you want to pause and check the sources, well, that's the beauty of a podcast. You can stop it. We've got options. To dive straight in, there is a basic Torah command played out repeatedly, but never stated explicitly, though we'll see it's stated pretty clearly, to maximize food resources, to avoid destroying food resources, to protect food prices for the poor, and to protect actual food for the poor. Here are eight examples before we turn to our Parsha. One, Dvarim. Dvarim Perikhaf, Pasugit Tatechaf, Deuteronomy 20, 19-20, explicitly forbids destroying food trees because they are a critical food resource. Kiadam Huetzasadeh. Two, Dvarim, again, Deuteronomy. Um, Perikid Bet, Psukim Tetfav Tetzain, Deuteronomy 12, 15 to 26, and Psukim Chavkim Motachav Talid, and uh, verses 23 to 24. Command anybody who's slaughtering an animal to slaughter it outside the city gates, and thereby to, quote unquote, water the ground. What's outside the city gates? We turn to Dvarim, Perikhaf, Psukim Yotetachav, Deuteronomy 20, 19 to 20, and we see that what's outside the city gates are orchards. And now it all makes sense. Blood is nitrogen-rich. And if we're already killing an animal, don't waste its blood by just pouring it out. Don't use its blood and pour it out over crops that will be harmful, such as wheat. That's not good. Um, but don't even eat it. That's, again, wasteful. If you're already eating meat, then blood is not really particularly uh, useful. Um, truth is, if you're already eating meat, the only person you give blood to is the poor, instead of giving them some of that meat. So that's definitely not a good idea. Rather, take the blood and use it in a useful way. Use it as a fertilizer to grow better trees, stronger trees, more fruit on the trees. This is also played on Vayikra. Um, Vayikra Parakudzayin Pasukvav says to pour the blood um, on, meaning around the altars, from Mizbachot, the Bamot, these various altars that we scattered around the land, if you then place it into context, there are orchards around the around the various temples, such as are around the Beit Hamikdash. If you look at your Miyao, Paragamid Aleph Pasuk uh, Lamentet thirty one thirty nine Jeremiah, but this would be too complicated for a podcast. So we'll focus on the Varim, where it's easy to see. Pour the blood out where the orchards that surround the city. Okay, that's two. One, don't chop down fruit trees because they're critical. Two, help the fruit trees grow well, fertilize them. With the blood of the animals that you're killing anyway, then don't waste their blood. Three. Third 
third example of where we care about resources. If you're going to kill a dam, a mother, a mother bird, and her eggs or chicks, don't kill them all. It makes sense that if you're going to choose one, you will choose eggs or chicks because they won't survive anyway without the mother. But if you're going to kill the mother, then you end up, well, killing the mother and the chicks if they're too young. But if you take them all at the same problem, you end up destroying all the resources. There will be no more birds produced from that line of birds. Therefore, don't do it. In fact, the Torah explains that the reason is resources. It's just, you have to, you have to listen to it. The Torah says, in Advarim, Perichav Bet, Sukim Vav Tezayin, Deuteronomy 22, 6-7, em alabanim, do not take the mother with the children, um, so that things will go well with you and you will live long. Pretty straightforward. If you don't take the mother and the chicks, not only do you feel kinder, but actually you will live well and longer because there will be more food for everybody. Same issue plays out with milk production. The Torah forbids taking a calf from its mother until the calf is a week old. It forbids it in Vayikra again, and in Shemot, um, Leviticus 22.26 and Exodus 22.30, where it says, <clears throat> It will be he, I mean, usually it's a male calf you're going to call and kill, which we'll explain in a moment, but the male calf will be with its mother for seven days. Now, that's a beautiful image of mother nurses and so on and so forth, and the calf is with its mother and all that. But frankly, we're going to kill on the eighth day. So what do we want out of this beautiful image of it will be with its mother for seven days? Well, biologically, if a cow nurses for seven days, it keeps producing milk afterwards. If a cow stops nursing before seven days, it can stop producing milk if the calf is taken away. So now it makes sense. If I'm going to call a calf, kill a calf, because it's too expensive for me to raise it as you know, a big piece of meat, and too expensive for me to raise it for its wool, if it's a sheep, or too expensive for me to raise for its milk, even if it's a female calf or, or um kid. <clears throat> well, if I'm going to do all that, still, wait a week, because to lose the milk is just a completely crazy loss. So the Torah gives the image. Seven days it will be with its mother. And that image of the mother nursing is exactly what we're looking for, because that's the image of a mother, a cow, or a goat, producing milk afterwards. To move from the mother to the father, that was four points so far. Plant the tree, um, don't chop down fruit trees, fertilize them well, don't destroy the bird, the birds, the source of food, birds, by taking the mother, the dam with the chicks and the eggs. And two, don't take a calf away and destroy the milk cow that would come from the, uh, the milk, sorry, that would come from the cow. And five, to move from the mother to the father, don't kill a bull and its buck, male calf, or no, bull buck, sorry, and its male calf on the same day. Given that meals, meat meals, were rarer among most people, maybe not kings, but most people, um, not just historically, you could look it up in Shmuel Bet, Perikid Bet, Sukimal of the second book of Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. People are not eating meat all the time. And given that they're not eating meat all the time, it's not as if, I, if I don't kill the bull today along with its calf, I'll kill one of them tomorrow. So rather, if I don't kill them both today, then I won't kill them both for a while. So, the Torah comes along and says, don't kill a bull or a buck and its calf on the same, male calf on the same day, then the Torah is saying, don't wipe out the male line. You may not need so many males. Maybe 
not worthwhile to keep the males. You may have other reasons you want to have the meat right now, and so forth. Okay? Because males are not as necessary as females. They don't provide milk. They don't provide new young. And you can plow with them just as you can plow with a male. So who needs the males? So yes, it makes sense the males are cold, but don't destroy both the father and the son the same day. That's just completely destructive of one's resources. And then the poor person becomes poorer. Um, sidebar, yes, I'm aware that later Tanaim expanded this to include don't kill the mother and the offspring, which makes sense, on the same day. Don't kill the mother and the offspring on the same day. And in fact, it reached a point where Jewish farmers in certain areas of the land didn't even need a male in their own herd. Males are more violent, testosterone, um, and they're not needed if you're living in a very well-guarded area where you'd have no fear of an animal, wild animal attacking your herd. So, under those conditions, we even Tanimu said that Isur of the Torah, the injunction of the Torah, only applies to a cow and a calf, and not to a bull and a calf, even though it says, Otovet Beno, um, the, the father, the bull, and its male calf. But I'm not getting into the later developments, because those are all appropriate developments for different conditions. I'm just sticking to Torah right now. And under the Torah conditions, the Torah forbids killing the bull and the calf, male calf on the same day. So, we are refusing to chop down fruit trees, even in times of war we need wood for sieging the city and so on and so forth. We are fertilizing if we're already killing animals. We're using the blood to fertilize and grow fruit trees instead of wasting the blood. Two, we are um, um, we are uh, preserving um, chicks, birds, and their eggs, meaning we're not killing off the whole species or the whole local bird. That we're providing new birds and new eggs and new chicks. Rather, we eat the eggs or the chicks, but not kill the mother together with them. Three, we don't take a calf away from its mother until the mother is producing milk solidly, meaning one week. And four, we don't kill both the bull and its male calf. I want to push forward to a law that people really miss and is really important. And that's Kilaim. Leviticus 19.19, very good, your tet, your tet, forbids planting different plants together, sowing them together. Now, one can explain this agriculturally, possibly. One can point out that if you, you, know, if you grow seeds too close to each other, then they may not take root well because they're too close to each other and the soil can't absorb the water, it's blocked. And then the soil runs off, the plants don't grow because the soil ran off, the surface soil ran off, and then it turns out the soil is also ruined for the future because as you lose surface soil, the ground, the dirt gets ground, ground gets ruined for the future and you can't grow new plants easily. Okay, could be. But if you look in Devarim, Devarim Deuteronomy 22.9, we find that it specifically forbids growing wheat and vines together. Now, what's special about wheat and vines? Well, turn to Amos. Perik Hei Pasukit Aleph and Perik Vav Pasukim Dalit Zayin, Amos 5.11 and 6.47. And turn to Oshea, Perik Bet Pasukim Yud to Tetvav, Oshea 2.10-15. And there's a, a specific problem raised. It's a problem of rich people replacing grain fields with vines. Ah, what's the problem? Well, I replace grain fields with vines. I'm rich. I replace grain fields with vines because the production value of grapes is much higher. They carry a higher market value. Great. So now I become richer. 
But now what's happened is I cut down the amount of wheat available in the market, local market. So you could say it's not a big deal. If everybody's becoming richer from selling grapes, wine, then people just import wheat because they're richer, so they can afford to import wheat. True. Except it's not true for the tenant farmer and for the really poor people who live on gleanings from the field. The tenant farmer now doesn't have wheat. And the classic way a tenant farmer is paid is by a portion of the wheat. I, the field owner, the rich one, who's now growing grapes, I'm not giving those grapes to that tenant farmer. Um, I'll pay the tenant farmer some amount of money, but I'm going to keep the grapes. And the person who's not even a tenant farmer, the poor person who just like lives on gleanings, there's nothing for them to glean. As the Torah says, that you should let people have the grapes, some grapes, but not nearly as much as grain. Grain, you leave payah. You leave a whole section for the poor. Grapes, you just let them maybe take a cluster, a non-full cluster. So the poor are not going to get food. Now, Dvarim recognizes that there is this uh, loophole that a, that a rich person might attempt, which is, I tell my tenant farmer, you know what? You want to grow wheat? You need wheat? You're right. You deserve wheat. Why don't you grow it between the vines? And that's the Kilim and Sefer Dvarim. It's growing wheat between grapes. Why is that so bad? Well, A, it's not necessarily enough for the tenant farmer. B, it doesn't provide wheat for everybody locally. Well, the poor people locally don't have wheat available locally. It all has to be imported. So the supply and demand now works against them. And now it turns out that Amos and Oshea are right in yelling at the poor, and Varm is right in forbidding this practice because the rich are replacing wheat fields with grapes and either not growing wheat at all or letting the tenant farmers grow a bit of wheat between the stalk, uh, between the vines, and cutting down on the wheat available for the poor and driving up the price. So where are you supposed to grow grapes? Where do Nevi'im and the Torah expect people to grow vines? On the hillsides. Yeshiel, Perakei, Pasagal says that explicitly. Isaiah 5.1. Where are grapes supposed to be grown and where is it beautiful to see them grown? On the hillsides. But churning wheat fields into into um, uh, wine vineyards into vineyards, well, that's great for those that have money, but that's not great for the local poor. So now we've moved beyond preserving resources. We move to actually worrying about the poor having resources, even as, as if there's enough money circulating to feed the poor, but it won't get to them. Hosea and, and, and almost they describe the rich taking the money from their earnings, from their wine or, uh, vineyards and wine and so forth, and buying themselves silk and all those things. So the money's not going to get to the poor. Therefore, instead, the Torah and the VM say, grow wheat, not a bit of wheat mixed in to vineyards. Okay, this is going to get us really, really close to our Parsha. One more point, and then we can get to our Parsha. Cooking a kid in its mother's milk, I know it's not this week's Parsha, but it's one of those also, like Kilayim, um, like uh, not sewing things, different species together, that throws people off. Cooking kid in its mother's milk is um, the injunction against it. The Yisr is mentioned in Shemot Perichav Gimel Pasuketet and Perich Lamedalet Pasuketavav, uh, Exodus 23.19, 34.26, and in Devarim Perich Pasuketavalef, Deuteronomy 14.21. Now, what's going on there? Actually, the same concern. As we pointed out earlier, a meat meal is rare. Therefore, the only reason for me to be killing a calf instead of waiting for it to grow and become a larger source of meat, or if it's a sheep to also provide wool along the way, or if it's a female to also provide milk along the way, and so forth. The only reason for me to kill a kid is because I can't afford to raise it. It's not worth my time. 
Well, if I can't afford to raise it, even in the future, it's worth more. It doesn't cost that much to raise it, but it's not worth my resources to raise it, then I need to be careful about not wasting milk. Cooking meat and milk doesn't do anything other than provide flavor. It doesn't provide more nutrition. Meat is iron and protein rich. Cooking the milk doesn't make a difference. But taking that same milk, not using it to cook meat, and therefore turning it into cheese for the next day, or if you eat the meat over more than one day, especially in the winter, turning it into cheese that you'll eat at some other point when you're not eating meat, that's a great use of resources. Comes on the Torah and says, if you're going to be cooking a kid, don't cook in its milk. In the mother milk, mother's milk, sorry. Rather, save the milk. Makes complete sense. Which is also why, by the way, um, the tradition of Jewish tradition, the tradition in Eretz Yisrael, where Jews created in Israel, where Jews, land of Israel, where Jews created an independent community of their own, not the same as Jews in Alexandria, which I'll mention in a moment. But the tradition of Jews in Israel, what we call Torah Shabbat Peh, was <coughs> that all meat and milk should not be cooked together. Because once we start thinking beyond the individual homestead, it actually makes sense to say rich people or people that can afford meat, when they're having meat, should not have it cooked in milk. And now if my meat's not cooked in milk, I'm not wasting milk just to flavor meat. If I'm not wasting milk just to flavor meat, then there is more milk on the market than there would be if I wasted it to flavor meat, which means there is more milk available for other people, such as poorer people. Also means the price of milk is a bit lower because there's less demand for, for it to be less demand and therefore a lower price than there would be if the demand were higher because rich people were wasting it to cook meat. So that's actually the expansion of tradition as we know it. Um, maybe it goes back to the beginning of forbidding cooking meat and milk. Side note, Philo in Alexandria says the injunction is only against cooking a kid in its mother's milk. Um, but that's Alexandria. We Jews don't control the market of meat and milk. And therefore, if some Jews avoid cooking, eating a meat and milk meal together, cooking their, mil- their meat and milk, they're not really going to affect the resources of meat and milk. So Philo is Philo in Alexandria. But in the land of Israel, in a place where there's a community of Jews that are interacting with each other and the markets are controlled by them, not in the sense of bankers controlling markets, but in terms of they are the market, um, then it makes sense not only to forbid a kid in its mother's milk, but all meat cooked in milk. Okay, those are seven points. Seven points that are going to help us understand this week's Parsha. One, don't cut down fruit trees because they're basic core food. Two, don't waste blood when slaughtering animals, but use it instead to fertilize orchards, fruit trees. Three, don't wastefully kill a dam and its chicks and eggs at the same time. Um, next, three, don't delay... Yeah. Don't kill a calf before its mother has been producing milk for a week. Four, don't kill a bull or a buck and its male calf on the same day. And five, don't replace wheat fields with vines because then the poor don't have wheat. And six, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. If you're going to cook kill the kid, then save the milk for a different meal, a different day. Last. Having said these seven points, we can turn back to our Parsha and back to our topic about today's conditions and the health measures we all impose upon ourselves. So, this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha has a list of forbidden animals. The first one we'll deal with is 
pig, because that's the famous one. <coughs> Pigs, um, sorry, just look at the Pasuk. Um, in our Parsha, Vaikra, Perkid Aleph Pasuk Zayin, and also in Dvarim, Perkid Aleph Pasuk Ched, Deuteronomy 14.8, and here Leviticus 11.7, forbid eating pig. In fact, they also forbid eating other scavenging omnivores. Now, why forbid this? Well, it's true they spread disease more easily than carnivores or herbivores, or more more easily than um, than herbivores. That's true. Um, herbivores, sorry, more easily than herbivores. That's true. But all over the world, people raise pigs because even though they spread diseases more easily. The cost benefit's worth it. It's just so cheap. They're, pigs are omnivores. They eat anything. If they eat anything, it's like, wow, it's just cheap. It kind of grows itself. It grows itself. Why not eat it as raise it and eat it as meat? Well, here's the thing. Pigs are omnivores, and that's great if you're in a country in which it rains all the time. So pigs go, and they eat something up, like England. They eat something up, and boom, it just grows back. England is a land of magical growth. It rains so much, cucumbers are giant. Okay, so, sure. That makes sense. But in the land of Israel, which is water poor in most of its most of the areas, water poor, doesn't get much rain. Pigs are destructive. This is not just an anthropological farming observation or even a historical one. I could point out that the Philistines even stopped eating pigs, except in the city of Gat, where the pig consumption even there went down. Um, like continued a bit to its very end, but it was down. Pig consumption just didn't doesn't match the land. But forgetting the Philistines, Philistines also stopped eating pig. It, forgetting agricultural studies, the, it's in Tanakh. Okay. In Tilim, I'm just looking up the Perik, in Tilim Perik Pei, Pasuk Yudalad, Psalms 80.14, describes how pigs destroy crops. A second temple work, um, known as the book of Enoch, Hanoch, the first book of Hanoch, uh, one Enoch, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, describe how Pigs destroy vegetation, that brings about hunger, and then that brings about bloodshed. But we don't have to turn to Baichini. Yeshay, um, late Baichini, you know, um, uh, pseudopigraphic works. Yeshayah, Isaiah, chapter 66. In Yeshayah, Perak Samachvav, in Pasugimel, he describes how rich people wastefully offer grain to God. Or Koban, an offering, but wastefully. He condemns them for offering too much grain to God. He compares them to eating pig and piously offering its blood on the altar, on the Mizbech. Now, let's hear that again. Yeshayahu compares, condemningly compares, the rich who excessively offer grain as sacrifices to persons who consume pig and, of course, offer its blood on the altar, because that's what you do when you kill animals, you offer the blood on the altar. Um, In other words... The one common denominator is that he's condemning people for destroying poor people's food, for wastefully destroying grain, either by offering too much on the altar or by raising pigs that just consume everything and there's no grain left for the poor. This is a key to the whole list. It's key to the whole list because it reminds us that our responsibility is not merely to think about what we are directly doing to somebody else, rather what we are indirectly doing to somebody else. And if this weren't a podcast, I would now show how this ethical concern of worrying what we do to others directly and indirectly and even 
the sense of we're wronging animals at times, which is also played out in Torah about killing animals and how to kill animals and what to do with the blood and not to take the blood from them and painfully while they're still alive and and, and all played out in Torah on how to kill animals and slaughter them more humanely, less humanely, shechita versus bludgeoning is in the Torah itself and it's, um, in Vayikra and Dvarim um, and even made more explicit in Shayal also in chapter Samachvav, but this would take us too far afield of the podcast. So, I want to pause on that on this aspect because I want to add one more twist. Just to pause again, what we've seen is, is a critical element. The critical element is care about the harm we do to others. Obviously, direct harm. So that includes people and how we kill animals and so forth in the Torah itself. Before we even get to Chazal and Torah, the oral tradition and rabbinic tradition, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's also about worrying what we do indirectly. Are we harming ourselves indirectly? Such as in, I have a cow and I have a calf. I'm going to waste the milk if I'm killing the calf and cooking it already. Do we harm others, such as wastefully destroying resources that we all need? So harming others and myself. And do we harm the poor indirectly by growing grapes instead of wheat that they need for basic sustenance? That's the basic point. But here's a twist. Generally, we think that once we have our values down right, then we have firm conclusions, and that's what we need to do. Whatever it is. I don't know, never use paper goods because it's destructive to the environment. It's a great rule of thumb, but it, people, some people will make it absolute, always, under all conditions. But the Torah here teaches in this week's Parsha that actually injunctions depend on conditions. So just a little bit of anthropology, and then we'll see it directly in the Parsha. People have different attitudes to food in different places in the world. So for instance, in Papua New Guinea, um, where there, well, classically at least, there were no animals, there were no birds, there were no animals, the only iron and protein sources were people. In Papua New Guinea, people ate people. It was a sign of respect. People eat their own dead. That is, horrifies everybody in all other societies. In fact, mammals don't carnivorously eat their own species. Even um, carnivores don't eat their own species. Mammals, not getting to reptiles. Um, and yet, in Papua New Guinea, People ate people. Why they ate people? Because they needed protein and iron. On the other end, you have places in India where there isn't enough meat for everybody, and agriculture is actually more important. Um, crops are actually more important. And since crops are more important, animals used for farming are completely taboo. So bulls and cows are completely taboo. Sometimes it shifts into different parts of India historically between males and females, but let's keep it simple. Bulls and taboos are forbidden. They're taboo. But... Depending who you ask, but in some circles, water buffaloes are fine. Why? Because water buffaloes aren't used for farming. But bulls and cows are absolutely taboo because they're used for farming. It's more important to have enough food for everybody than to destroy all the you know, cows and bulls, and then the poor will starve, and then the rich won't have food, and the poor will kill the rich, and everything else that happens along with that, as we saw in the book of Enoch. No food, starvation, and bloodshed. Okay, so keeping that in mind, that there's a range of human responses depending on the conditions. Sometimes we can even eat people, God forbid, and sometimes we can end up not eating any animals, or at least the animals we really need. And especially if you get today, where it's easy to be vegetarian and nutritious, I'm not getting into all that right now, going with classical societies. Um, given that range, we turn to this week's Parsha, and we see three psukim that seem to be contradiction, contradictory, and they're in succession. First pasuk is pasuk yud aleph. Um, oh, sorry, perik yud aleph pasuk 
Pasuk Chaf. Leviticus 11.20. Leviticus 11.20, Pasuk Chaf, forbids eating flying insects. Right after that, Sukim Chaf Alef Tachaf Bet, 11.21-22. It permits eating locusts. <laughs> it forbids flying insects, and then it permits eating locusts. Locusts are flying insects. That's a contradiction. No, it's not in real life. There's a list of forbidden foods here. And of course, one of them is forbidding contagious foods. Swarm, sweep, sweep, uh, swarming creatures, shketzim, um, which are considered tamay because they generally spread disease. Um, they're forbidden to eat, as opposed to rich telling the poor, oh, you have some, you know, go eat a rat or something. They're forbidden to eat. <clears throat> but locusts, ah, when do locusts appear? Well, locusts are grasshoppers that end up swarming. They end up getting closer together. They change, the grasshopper changes phase from a grasshopper into a locust. Body changes physically. And they do this when there's too many of them. So then they need to start flying and looking for food. And they fly in swarms. And as we all know, they destroy all the produce in the way and just eat and eat and eat. That means that locusts exist when there is no food. Meaning when the Torah permits me to eat locusts, that's because what I'm eating is that locust that fell to the ground because when they swarm, they bump into each other and then some get knocked to the ground. I've eaten locusts that fell to the ground after the swarm passed through and destroyed all the crops. Of course it's mature at that point. There's no other food. Meaning, within this Parsha that gives us these seemingly firm guidelines, this animal is wrong to eat, this animal is okay to eat, and so on and so forth, the Torah itself reminds us norms depend on context. What is wrong sometimes may be right other times. But might be okay sometimes, like eating a flying insect called a locust, is going to be wrong in other times, in other contexts. There are no magical rules that will always be right for all circumstances. There is a responsibility instead. And the responsibility to, act to, the responsibility is to ask ourselves, one, obviously am I taking care of myself? I mean, any, 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 Ethics of the Fathers, chapter one. But beyond that, there's a responsibility to ask, am I hurting somebody else directly? And am I hurting other people indirectly? And between the mix of all those choices, of all those questions, we ask, what food is permitted? What's forbidden? So, in these days, we're all confined at home. Let us remember, we're not confined at home to save our own lives. Most of us, at least. And we're not confined at home because the government forces us to be confined at home. We're confined because we're responsible to maintain the healthcare system for all of us, which, true, helps us individually. We never know when we might need it. And to protect those who would die if exposed. It's called responsibility. It's called halachic thinking in general. We have all these norms to protect each other. And it's called Torah law, which, again, we have all these norms to protect each other. Shabbat Shalom, Buyut Shlema. Shabbat Shalom and good health to all of us. Thank you, Rabbi Anshelvitz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pradesh from Jerusalem.